listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. This is a podcast where we take a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser known films that we think deserve to lay their eggs in our stomachs. Jokes on you, I'm into that. Uh, that's lovely. Francesca, why don't you introduce our guest for today? Well, joining us today is resident alien expert, Loris. Hi. Yeah, I'm Loris. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Uh, I'm something of a letterbox addict since October 2020 and generally just a film buff. And now a drag artist not in hiatus, but is struggling to book a gig. Yeah, and you have no other qualifications than that. And how do you two know each other? Uh, we're dating. Um, oh, we're dating. Why is it taking you this long to invite your partner onto the podcast? To be fair, we talked about it for like almost as soon as you guys got the podcast started. Yeah, we were just trying to find the right fit for an episode. Yeah, that's what they all say. <laughs> well, I know I speak for myself, if not Francesco, when I say how excited I am to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. So today we are talking about Ridley Scott's 1979 sci-fi horror, Alien which is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> During its return to the Earth, commercial spaceship Nostromo intercepts a distress signal from a distant planet when a three-member team of the crew discovers a chamber containing thousands of eggs on the planet. A creature inside one of the eggs attacks an explorer. The entire crew, including Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, is unaware of the impending nightmare set to descend upon them when the alien parasite planted inside its unfortunate host is burst. I think Ripley's quite aware of the nightmare from the get-go. Yeah, I, I think that's... The potential be, for the nightmare. So to be said about her, she, she, she sees the threat right off. <laughs> um, that post-pandemic struggle when you're like, we need a quarantine and everyone just ignores you. They're anti-vaxxers. <laughs> well, at least he's wearing some form of a face mask when he, goes, when he gets into the ship. That's true, Kane is pro-mask. <laughs> <laughs> so I gather that we all think this is a good film. This yeah. is an amazing film. Yeah. Like, straight up, it's good as an understatement. This is, like, actually possibly the best sci-fi horror. Maybe not the best science fiction film. I'm not going to go that far because I don't it's know such a well. It's such a broad category as well. Yeah, it is a broad category. But as far as, like, the sci-fi horror, like, that combination of genres, I find it hard to think of any other that contends with this. Well, you remember it was on my... When we did what our sight and sound list would be, it was on mine. Because I, 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 I totally agree with you. I think this is such a spectacular yeah, film. Yeah, you thought this should have been on there instead of Blade Runner. Yeah. Okay, can you elaborate on that? Because, I mean, I think they're somewhat comparable because I think they're both part of the cyberpunk genre, but... So the reason why is more that if there was going to be a Ridley Scott on there and it was also a sci-fi, I think Alien is a better film. I think it benefits from the fact that the lead actor actually gives a shit. <laughs> okay. And I like Blade Runner. I love Alien. Yeah, I mean, I will probably explain a bit more about, like, my own, a bit more contextually about the cyberpunk genre and whether, which one is a better representation of the cyberpunk genre or not, but I... I don't think of this as particularly cyberpunk. Do you not? Oh, we'll get into that. It's actually... I wouldn't have considered this cyberpunk when first watching it, but talking to Loris about it, I'm... Okay, I look forward to hearing that, but the question I wanted to ask is, do you prefer this... Or Aliens. They're two different films. Yeah. I, I just, I think like Aliens is an amazing sequel. It revitalizes the setup in a way that like makes it possible for a sequel to exist. Like there's no way you can make a direct sequel to the same setting, the setup of Alien. It's just too insular, like it has to be on the Nostromo. It has to be Ripley surviving it. And it has to be quite like minimalistic. And if you're going to do a sequel, it has to be like, you have to add more to it. 
And I think by making it an action film that is like more aliens, more crew, more people surviving. They, they lose the horror. They do lose the horror, yeah. And part of what makes it an effective one, what I think makes horror work in a lot of cases is when the quote-unquote victims or the you know protagonists are ordinary people hmm. and in the world of alien the crew of the nostromo are ordinary people in aliens they're all space marines yeah that's actually something that um on my rewatch of alien a thing that really struck me about why i love this film so much is that yeah the nostromo crew are just ordinary workers crew like they're not astronauts they're not out here looking for new territory or exploring new aliens or anything like that they get thrown into a situation that's completely out of their control and not something that they were contracted for. And also, they're just a group of people that you could be working with yourself or you could be one of them. In Aliens, it is a Marine Corps. It's like these people are out here ready to kill like monsters and it's less of the sympathy factor there. And they all look like ordinary people. I mean, Sigourney Weaver is beautiful in this film, but she's beautiful in a way that a beautiful person at work is beautiful. She's not made up to look like an action star. Hmm. And I don't really think James Cameron does that to her either, but there is something so refreshing in like the late 1970s of just like, this is a crew made up of different looking people, some of whom are very distinct. It's also very working class, right? They spend the yeah. entire first part of the film just whining about the uh, well, private company they had. Th- there's a real class difference between, you know, the engineers and the, um, I suppose, the helm crew. I'm not really a Star Trek person. I don't know, the scientists, the doctors. Well, the, only, yeah. I mean, the doctor I mean, is a robot. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we'll talk about him. And the Captain Dallas, mm-hmm. played by um, a very rugged-looking Tom Skerritt. Is this our Tom Skerritt report cure? Or are we gonna uh, well, now that you mention it. <laughs> okay, knock it out, gentlemen. Let's go home. Bye, prayers to lead. Hello listeners, hello all. This is Will bringing you a scare report for the film Alien. Last week we were talking about Top Gun with him playing Viper. But now we've got a more rugged scare. He's got a beard, he's got a kind of loose shirt. You could see him wearing a lumberjack shirt and holding a chainsaw, but instead he's the captain of this cargo vessel. And I really think Scott sets him up as the all-American man. You know, he, you, you could see this man defeating a 10-foot tall alien in a hand-to-hand combat, but... He turns out to be really dumb. Now, usually men of this rugged, sexy caliber in Hollywood don't die so easily. And if they do die, it's after a heroic struggle. But instead, we see him make the wrong decision at every turn. He lets the alien onto the ship. He ignores Ripley's advice, tries to fight it by himself, grabs a flamethrower, and ultimately struggles to use it. And yeah, this is a a rugged scare, a different scare that we've had from last week, but ultimately not one who you trust with your life. So, a uh, good movie, good scare it, but the character, unfortunately, didn't deserve to live. Nice. Is this uh, a dry scare it or a yes, wet scare Yes, good question. I'll, t- I'll text him and yeah. uh, <laughs> Is it a dry scare it or a wet scare it? Yeah. I think this is more of a wet scare it. Does he look dramatically different in Top Gun? He's got a he's, yeah, yeah, he's got like the... Like how Will describes it as Lego hair. <laughs> and the, um, the baseball cap with the movie title on it. Yeah. Whereas Doesn't in this, have a baseball cap with Alien written on it in this one. <laughs> Whereas in this, he looks like Ben Affleck in Argo. He does, right. I think he's very hot in this movie. But I think Will makes an interesting point that, you know, that Dallas is set up to be, you know, he's the captain of the ship. And he's doing stuff that in another film might be seen as heroic. He puts the lives of his crew first. He puts his trust in the mysterious scientist. He goes out on his own to fight the alien so that his crew isn't in danger. However, in this film, 
it fucks up massively, and it's Ripley's clear rationalism and, you know, suspicions that turn out to be totally vindicated. But I think you need a character like Dallas and an actor like Skerritt in that role so that you can believe these things are heroic. Mm-hmm. And it can up the stakes as well, if the hero is the first one to die, one of the first ones to die. Which brings me to a question. Have you guys watched the full cut or the theatrical cut? Uh, theatrical cut, because the director's cut, it adds a few things, but it doesn't... Uh, I, like, I know I know what's added. Well, one of the things that's added is that scene that they got reckoned in the sequel of Dallas being put inside that chamber with eggs and being used to feed the eggs. Yeah, and, and, and Brett's in that scene as well. Yeah, he is, because that's, a, that's kind of a continuity. I wouldn't say an error, but the thing is, we never see... The alien never leaves any bodies behind except for the last two kills, mm. and it's always like... Well, what is it doing with the bodies? And we know from later on canon, like, the alien doesn't necessarily eat human flesh. It only really preserves human flesh or kills. So it's a bit weird. I know they recon it, and it's debatable whether that's, like, a pro or a con. But in a weird way, when you watch the theatrical version, it's a bit like, where are the bodies? But that makes it kind of scarier. Because they make a point of, like, oh, Dallas disappeared, there's no blood. What happened to him? Mm. Yeah, I think it's more interesting, especially when you see that the... Xenomorph's mouth isn't big enough to eat a person. Yeah, it's only big enough to take a chunk out of your brain to, like, yeah. immobilize you. God, this movie's so good. <laughs> I love it so much. Just quick, do you mind if we just quickly, like, run, th- run through the rest of the cast? Yeah. Uh, John Hurt in this film is so good. And again, it's a character that whose perspective we see the world from quite early on. He's the first one to wake up, and he's the first one to die. So even if he's dying first, we get a lot of time with him. Harry Dean Stanton and Yafikoto are very cute as the engineers. Mm-hmm. They're two of like my favorite side characters, if not my favorite side characters in this film, just because their banter in the beginning just kind of puts you at a bit of ease and also kind of makes you a bit heartbroken that they're gonna die. Because this is like, oh yeah, these guys are just mates. Like this, this crew are just like mates, they have banter. There's like a bit of dimension to how they all interact with one another. They talk about, two, he talks about eating pussy. Yeah, uh, but it's like those two are like the first two that sort of establish that sense of like, these people are ordinary, that they're not like above and beyond scientists or whatever, they're just ordinary people. Yeah, and it's, it brings me to a point that you made in our Joe's episode that there is not a horror or a slasher, if you will, where characters are just there to be killed. No, I mean, some people have criticized this film for not giving enough to these characters, but I actually think that the way that these characters are presented, they feel so real that they don't necessarily need an arc. They just feel realized. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mix of the space they're given to just have a talk. I mean, it also does sort of show how much of an effect Robert Altman had during this period in the in the dialogue scenes because it's so it's so naturalistic. Also, I could sort of criticize Aliens a little bit for the fact that in Aliens, they introduced the idea that Sigourney Weaver was a mother, that she had a family back on Earth. And I personally find that kind of like way to make you care about a character to be a bit trite in Hollywood sort of yeah. standards. And at least in this one, it's like... She, oh, has yeah. a ca- she likes the cat. Yeah, she That's likes enough. the cat. That is enough. And equally, with regards to the rest of the crew, I don't know. They speak quite naturalistically. We understand their motivations being in this job we understand their motivations to survive i don't know if there is much more really needed and even like having a cat on board that's quite humanizing it's like they have a pet they, cat they have a mascot they have a mascot yeah or even the fact that the ship has like when they're killing the android uh, they have to chuck him up against a wall and there's like this pornography on the wall like yeah. a bunch of pinups i'm just like yeah that humanizes him like this is kind of like you can see this as being like harry dean stanton's corner the room or whatever yeah. 
I don't know if they necessarily need much more. If you had much more, it would take away time from the actual tension and like plot building and all that. Yeah. Then also, I think that Veronica Cartwright as sort of the, you know, more emotional of the two female characters. She survives to the end. It's not like the woman dies first or the black guy dies first. They're actually the last two. <laughs> the last two to die, yeah. And um, I think originally that role was offered to Sigourney Weaver, but in the original script, she was much savvier and more, more like wisecracking. That makes sense because do you know who was originally going to play Ripley if Sigourney Weaver was Lambert? No. Meryl Streep. Okay. She also was going to die in the original script. Yeah, the alien was going to like literally rip her head off. It was going to be extremely gory. And, and use her voice to then make the last log. Oh, okay, so that's at the end of the film. I'm so glad they didn't kill her, though. That would have been a bit airing too much into the dark side of things, I think. And I also think, like, at the end of the day, this is kind of meant to be a story. Like, there's the ominous company. People feel, like, out of their control and such. And I, I don't know, I need a little bit of optimism in this film that she needs to survive, or Jonesy, but both is ideal. But I think originally what they didn't want to have was to have a final girl type of character. So that's why they probably thought about killing her. But you, you say yeah. that, but the idea of the final girl is really new at this point. Well, but it was already, Halloween you know, is only a few years ago. Uh, how old was Texas uh, Texas Chainsaw? Texas Chainsaw around the same time. Like, it's but not, I, I do remember that the term like, "Final yeah. Girl" doesn't become like that big until Scream. That's true, but I do remember that whether they called it "Final Girl" or not, they didn't want to have that trope. But ultimately, they decided that it was a good idea to let Ripley survive because she didn't just survive because she escaped. And out of divine providence, she survives thanks to her skill and her, you know, ingenuity. But it's pretty regular skill and ingenuity. That's what I really like is that she's just a smart person. She doesn't, like, have this otherworldly intellect or ability. She just gets quite lucky. Yeah, I like the moments when she breaks down. I know that might sound a bit strange, but strong female characters, when they're just playing badasses with no emotional, like, layering. Like, the fact that we see her, when she initially, like, goes on to Mother and she finds the crew expendable note... She breaks down. Like, that's a genuinely yeah. disturbing and horrifying moment for her. And it's like she carries that horror with her. She is scared throughout, but she still uses her wit to, like, outsmart this alien. So, yeah. Yeah, I know, but uh, uh, the idea of, like, having strong female characters being stoic and emotionless, it's like you're applying the same toxic masculinity stereotypes onto a female character. You're not actually writing a strong character. But she, I mean, she is, if not stoic, she is at least in the first act, more rational than her two superiors, which Absolutely. are Kane and Dallas, yeah. who, you know, quite reasonably want to save their crewmate. But she's saying, no, these are the protocols, we have to do this. She is calm, she's rational. I, I don't think that that's something that is necessarily stereotypically female, especially in films at that time. But I think it is interesting that they give the female character that to do. Mm -hmm. uh, did you know that in Dan O'Bannon's original script, every role was gender neutral. So it wasn't necessary that Ripley was going to be a woman, that Dallas was going to be a man. He just wrote the surnames, but no... Yeah. Yeah, okay. And he basically said, yeah, this means you can cast whoever you want and not have to worry about stereotypes. Oh. And that's why, you know, it's maybe a more diverse crew than you'd see in most sci-fis at this time. And that's actually a really good technique for the screenwriters themselves to get rid of internalized biases they might have. I'm just going to write a character, and then they're just going to put whatever face to them that they want. Oh, that's interesting. That is interesting, though. I should say that I still think that a lot about who they casted for these characters and the genders that these characters become does carry through with weight in the themes of I'm the I'm sure alien. the script went through rewrites after casting. 
Mm. Or at least after knowing how they envision different roles for different characters. Yeah, because uh, a sort of, I don't know if this is an entirely separate point or not, but something that I think is very long lasting about Alien is its treatment of gender. So for instance, we talked about Dallas being like, sort of coded as like a hero character. And when you start the film, the group in themselves, and we know now that Sigourney Weaver Ripley is the main character. But if you went back to the 70s, you were watching this film for, for the first time, you could easily be like, maybe it could have been Dallas who was the lead. Especially because you don't know who Sigourney Weaver is. Totally. She's not famous at this point. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver is not famous. And how many female leads are there in sci-fis before this? Carrie Fisher. Yeah, and even then she's part of a trio. So yeah. the role is kind of like the importance of her role is a bit dispersed. Yeah. That's a whole other separate point about like sci-fi in this era of cinema, because I think on some level, I don't know, sci-fi was definitely gaining some momentum and prestige in the 70s. Surely, but like in the 50s and 60s, it was a total B-movie genre. This is like a key yeah. example of like elevated horror in a way. I know I hate that term elevated horror, don't get me started on it, but it's a bit funny that people in the 2010s yeah. are like, oh yeah, we've invented this thing called elevated horror. And it's like actually Alien existed as elevated horror in the late 70s. But even like Cronenberg, I think this kind of helps that Ridley Scott isn't known for being a horror director. Like before this, he does The Duelists which is like a period piece. And after this, he does Blade Runner, which is also sci-fi, but it's not, he's not a John Carpenter. He's not a Wes Craven. He's not a David Cronenberg who is known for playing in this genre. And that allows people to unfortunately take this film seriously. Mm. And I'm glad people are, but I wish it was because of the horror elements, not in spite of it. There's always this consistent tension throughout the film, whether it's like, what is the signal from this planet that they don't know about? her discovering that's a warning, not a distress signal to the alien actually getting onto the ship. It's like there's constant tension throughout in a way that never really breaks. It's fantastic horror filmmaking. Yeah, no, I, I, I think so too. I always liked this film. I didn't realize that it was, in my view, a masterpiece until I saw it in the cinema for the first time. Mm. And seeing it with people, I realized like how scary it is, but also how funny it is. That's the thing that you really notice when you go and see a film with other people, is that the energy in a room really affects your ability to comprehend emotions like fear and humor. So the Yafik Koto bit when he's eating, that got a huge, huge laugh. And Harry Dean Stanton trying to get the cat, that's really funny, but you maybe don't pick up on that if you're just watching it on your own on your laptop. Mm. The uh, last character we haven't spoken about is Ian Holm as the science officer, Ash. What do we think of Ash? Nice guy? Cool guy? Ash is incredible, to be honest. It's been a while since I had like last sat through it until like, this past week, and I'd honestly sort of expected Ash to be a bit more like stoic. And I was actually very surprised about how emotive he is. He's a very annoyed android. He's like, I have this plan and y'all are getting in my way. I'm so freaking on the urge of like punching you all. You know Lance Hendrickson in Aliens? Hmm. Who is, of, I think, more of what we would expect an android character to be like. Whereas Ash, as an android, compared to Lance Hendrickson, who's, you know, a bit like Data from Star Trek. Hmm. Ian Holm is just a jerk. Totally. As an android, he's just a bit of a dick. And it's totally to the benefit of the plot. Because initially when he's like butting heads with Ripley, you can almost believe that he's just some misogynistic crewmate who maybe has like more of a head for science. It's like, I'm more interested in finding out more about this alien, but for like human flawed reasons. And then it's like, it does feel like a legitimate plot twist that he is an actual like non-human entity. And, and that he embodies the corporation as a non-human. He is the face of the corporation. It's hard to tell where his own programming and 
him as Ash really begins and ends. But I think there's this element that he is passionate about the science that he's been programmed with. Yeah, that's that amazing scene where he's just the head and they're asking about the mission and she says, you admire the creature. And he says, I admire its purity. Mm-hmm. And there's something so chilling about that. I mean, it's almost fascistic the way that he sees this creature. Well, because it's, it's basically, yeah, a measurable scientific determiner of the superiority of a certain species over the other. It's eugenetic almost by design. Even though, you know, ultimately the fact that it goes wild and kills everyone shows that that programming is deeply flawed because there is no way to safely contain it and bring it back to Earth because it will kill everyone. So there would be one more character to discuss, which is the xenomorph. Of course. But... What I have to say about the Xenomorph, I can save for the Tetsuo section, actually. Okay. I mean, I think it's just worth pointing out that it looks amazing. Yeah. H.R. Geiger's art is, like, one of the most haunting things that you will ever see in your life. And it amazed me that I only found out about this recently, that the design of the alien, the Xenomorph, existed, like, years before the film was even, like, an idea. Well, H.R. Geiger, who painted the original painting, also designed the Xenomorph in the film. Yeah, no, it's based off of a 1976 painting that he did Mm -hmm. where it is just the alien. And that's just amazing to think that he came up with this idea outside of the context of this film and that they then worked the film around that design. But if I had any comments to make about the xenomorph, it's um, whenever you break down the idea of why does this creature remain such like a fixture in our pop culture. I think it's like one of the most fascinating things is sort of like looking into how it possesses like elements that are subversive of gender. It begins the film by impregnating a man with a face hugger that re- resembles a vulva. And then moving forward, I mean, it does get retconned, but it's sort of implied that the alien is an asexual producing being. It lays eggs in the ship. Mm-hmm. That gets majorly retconned and aliens therefore make a binary with a mother alien and then smaller aliens, which again, I have mixed feelings about because I would much rather an alien that's a bit more conceptually ambiguous and strange to really make out. But also the costuming, incredible. I say the performance of Balaji Badejo, Nigerian actor who plays, well, it isn't, an actor, but he is in is in the suit and does some amazing movement that feels totally, if not realistic, totally authentic to the mechanics of this life form. Mm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like everything about it just works so well. And like, I and whenever I watch this film, I'm always like, every decision in this film is perfect. Uh, but the alien itself, the fact that it can blend into the ship's like look. And, like, that is used in the last part of it. Yeah, but that's what I was about to bring up. Well, I wanted to say for the Tetsuo section, but the Geiger paintings were meant to be almost like a dystopic vision of a cyberpunk future where organic beings are merged in with machines. And the other design that he did for this film was the space jockey, that huge, like, pilot of the alien ship that they find with its chest burst open. And if you look at the space jockey, it's literally merged in with the ship it's piloting. It's like it's part of the ship. So the- Like Avatar. Oh yeah, because well, but that but that's organic, see? Because they they link their tails with the animals. Just is, saying. Here it, here, Just saying yeah. to bring James Cameron back into this conversation. But yeah, but but here, here it's it's mechanical, and that's why like the xenomorph almost looks like it's got some mechanical elements in its organic insect-like body. But it also works so well in that the ship is so expertly lit to hide the xenomorph in the corner. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of films now that don't treat lighting in this way, I don't think you could ever get that level of intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, the first few minutes of the film are just like the camera pan- panning around the ship, illustrating the ship like this haunted house, that there's multiple layers, 
there's multiple textures in the walls everywhere. And this is why I don't think there's a single moment in this film that's boring or like padded out or useless. Everything is done to make this whole piece to make sure like the audience understands that the alien can hide anywhere because we know this ship is vast. Uh, God, this film is so fucking good. <laughs> so good. It's been my favorite film since I was like nine. Oh, really? I didn't know it was your favorite film. It's so up there. It's like any film like a zero five out of five could be my favorite film at any given week, depending if it's like in my consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Okay, so availability. You can stream this on Disney Plus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a kid's film. <laughs> yeah, I watched it as a kid. Has Disney bought the Alien franchise now? I think they've bought something that has the rights to the Alien franchise. Jesus, anyway. Uh, you can rent it on Rakuten TV. Big up for Rakuten TV, our favourites. Oh, God. Amazon. Apple TV+, Plus, Google Play, Sky Store, Chili, Microsoft, and YouTube, and you can buy it on all those platforms as well. Well, Racket on TV, if you want to sponsor us, we're doing way more marketing than you than you ever did. What are you? <laughs> Who are you? Where are you? They are the company behind the Nostromo. Oh, God. Oh God Turns out it's Racket on TV. <laughs> no, that was Disney. That would make sense why it's on Disney Plus for free. Uh, no, it's, it's pro-ash. <laughs> All right, should we move on to our next film? Uh, we shall. All right, one, yeah. two, three, clap. They watched. They waited. Now their time has come. Out of the depths of space, the ultimate terror. Moving, searching, destroying. From body to body, from life to life, from man to woman. Changing, growing, burning for our life force. <laughs> Life Force is a 1985 film directed by horror legend Toby Hooper. A space shuttle mission investigating Halley's Comet brings back a malevolent race of space vampires who transform most of London's population into zombies. The only survivor of the expedition, Colonel Tom Carlson and British authorities attempt to capture a mysterious but beautiful alien woman who appears responsible. What a film! It's a pretty guys. accurate synopsis. Of everything, but it doesn't quite go into how weird this film is. No, it doesn't. This film throws everything at the wall. It really does. Before I get into my argument, which I was making to Loris off mic, did you guys like this film? I did. From the synopsis, I was expecting it to be a bit more of an outright comedy or parody type of film. I was surprised at how it's seriously very, it took itself. It's very itself. earnest. Yeah. Yeah, almost to his detriment element, I kind of wanted to be a bit more like going with the craziness of all, which it does at certain moments. And those are probably my favorite moments of the film where it's just like laugh out loud, funny. And you're like, they know they're making this funny. They know this is so insanely stupid and weird. But yeah, when it does try to be a bit more earnest, it can drag slightly because it's like, I can't take this plot seriously in the way that it's trying to command me to. What plot? What plot is there to take seriously? It's insane. It's everything. It's Dracula in space. Except for it's not in space. It's, it's Brides of Dracula if they were aliens. Exactly. So my theory is that this isn't the best horror film ever made, but it might be the ultimate horror film ever made. The ultimate horror film? Yeah. I can't think of a single horror film that goes through quite so many subgenres in right. 102 minutes. Right, because we got aliens, we got vampires, we got zombies, we got, got succubi. But you've got two sort of sci-fi horrors. You've got sort of the 
stuff that we've seen in Alien, but you've also got kind of Lovecraftian, end of days, cosmic horror. Well, it reminded me a lot, and I texted you about it, of In, in the, the Mouth, Mouth of Madness. Madness. which we covered on our The Shining yeah. episode. But In the Mouth of Madness is a more, like, fun, lie-hearted yeah, approach. Yeah, th- that film is very scary, but also very funny. Yeah. I think this can be funny, but not, I think, in the ways it might have intended. It's got, you know, religious elements. It's kind of... The scenes with Patrick Stewart remind me a lot of The Exorcist. <laughs> you know, there's a lot going on. There's zombies. There's a plague. It, it's got everything. Has body horror. Absolutely. Practical effects. Special effects. It, it, it's kind of got, goes... It runs the gamut of horror cinema for everything that came before in 1985. I mean, a lot of people have said that it's a lot like Hammer Horror. Which I, I totally see in terms of tone. But then you also throw in, like, weird sexual Benny Hill stuff. Sexual Benny Hill stuff? Yeah, like, the guy who picks up the hitchhiker. It's it's quite, you know, cheeky, for want of a better word. And then there's the Prime Minister, I think, calls in his secretary to go behind the thing and start sucking her face off. Or the fact that when they find, like, one of the first victims outside of, this, like, the unit that they kept the aliens in, it's like they're interviewing these two guys who are like... Well, we just watched them, like, from behind a tree. Like, we thought they were, like, lesbians or something. Because like, well, one the of them hell? was naked, so yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like the elephant in the room we have to discuss is the nudity in this scene. Sorry, the whole film. And Matilda May is naked for basically the entire run of this film. What do we guys think of that? And, and not to be, like, overly pervy or anything, I just wanted to... Because it's such a big part of this film. I mean, she is basically naked for no practical reason. There is this element that she's, like, seducing men as she maneuvers through, like, the center in which she's been kept in. But also, at the same time, I kind of got desensitized to very early on with the ridiculousness of everything else going on. You're absolutely right. Have you seen uh, Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls? Alas, no. I keep meaning to. I think it employs nudity in a very similar way. Have you seen Benedetta? Just any recent Paul Verhoeven film. Sorry, no. Okay, so personally, my problem with nudity in film or theatre or anything, not so much a problem, but my question with it is, if you show nudity for the purpose of titillation, you take people out of the film as soon as you take the nudity away, because all they'll be thinking is, when are we going to get more nudity? In this, because you know there's going to be more nudity, because a vital part of this vampire's character is that she's naked for the whole film. You're not wondering when it's going to come back. In fact, when she turns up, you're like, oh, can we just put some clothes on her? This is scary. Also, it's not equal opportunities. There's two male vampires as well, and we don't get any frontal nudity in them. We see them topless, but, like, we don't see... You know, one of them is Mick Jagger's brother. For real? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I like this film 5% more now. (laughs) But, no, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that... The male gaze isn't just a part of the audience of this film, it is a part of the characters in this film. And I think if there are people who are acting creepy, it makes you lusting over a female character far more um, agreeable. Well, but uh, she's more of a succubus than a vampire, so you're right, it's this idea of like the nudity being alluring, but Fine. also weird. But the scary. book this is based on is called Vampires in Space. Sorry, but I guess my point was going to be that because she is this type of character who uses her nudity to seduce men and kill them, as an audience member, if you are titillated by her, you're almost put in the shoes of the victims of this alien. So 
Her nudity, yes, it's alluring, but there's also a sinister side to it that can make the audience uncomfortable. Do you think there might be a sinister side to this character? No, but you know, like the, the idea that it's not, it's not pornographic, right? No. It's, th- there's almost an element of the horror that is linked directly to her nudity and the fact that she does seduce men. Like the idea that almost like the... the it's a bit psychosexual. The male, yeah, and the, the, the male gaze in the audience is meant to be questioned and it's it's meant to be feeding into some sort of male paranoia around succubi-like characters. Yeah, I think that is, you know, a part of it and the fact that you do have one of the characters thinking, oh, she wants me, she's in love with me. And like that's really interesting <laughs> as well. I don't, there's, there's just a lot in this film and I, again, this isn't one of my favourite films of all time but I really wanted to bring it up in conversation with Alien because I think it does take a lot from, not least because Dan O'Bannon also wrote this, which is an incredible fact, by the way. It's Dan O'Bannon and the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, Toby Hooper. What a curious combination that makes such a curious film that's not the least bit resembling of either Alien or Texas Chainsaw. I mean, a little bit of Alien, because there is that initial setup of the first 10 minutes of them being on a ship. But even then, whereas Alien is like ordinary crew members out doing a job, in this one they are actual astronauts that are chasing after a comet, and they're also, like purposely out there. Also... The music is by Henry Mancini, four-time Academy Award-winning composer. For what? He did the Pink Panther theme. Oh, wow. That might be what he's best known for. But yeah, he's you know very well-respected, <laughs> which kind of makes you wonder how this film like does sort of have the vibe of a Hammer Horror B-movie. Yeah, I, I guess what, uh, following up on Charlie's point, the sum of this movie's parts should add up to some gritty, high-tension horror movie, and yet it isn't. It's so goofy in a way that I, I do believe is knowing. It knows that it's goofy on some level while trying to be earnest. And that kind of makes it all a bit of a lovable combination, but still not maybe like a film that I would write terribly highly. Again, I wish it leaned more into the goofiness. Yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying, but I think that in the way that I think I feel about Tetsuo as well, which we'll talk about in a sec. The fact that it does just sort of go from naught to sixty, and so like the, the arrival of the Nostromo on the um, alien planet happens not late in the movie, but a good amount of time has happened to establish everything. Roughly thirty minutes. About yeah, it's about half an hour into the movie. This it goes straight to it, and. There's no preamble, it's just everything is happening all the time. But also the crew of the spaceship isn't really the point of life force, it's well, no, they're just all the one survivor. About five minutes into the film, they're all dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really... Oh, there's so much. Also, Patrick Stewart in this film, it's, he's in this film for like 20 minutes. And he has the gayest moment in it. He c- calls a child molester naughty at one point. Again, it's like this he's film... He's been naughty. <laughs> If we isolate moments from it, it doesn't sound like it's from the same film. Also, it doesn't sound like it's from a real film. Yeah, true. I mean, it did bomb in, like, box office, didn't it? Oh, like, yeah. It's become a real cult classic, but it wasn't... I don't think it was successful. Hmm. Well, do we want to talk about the best line in the movie? I don't know. What do you think is the best line in the movie? Well, how, how should we describe the scene? Essentially, the space vampire has possessed a woman. Oh, yeah, Carson. The, the, so the, the pilot of the Churchill, the ship, the survivor of the ship that burned, is, like, shaking her 
uh, very roughly and very with a lot of sexual connotations in order to shake the uh, vampire out of her or something like that. And then he rips her blouse out to show that she's got scratches on her back. And so, what, what does he say exactly at that point? He basically declares that she's a masochist and therefore the only way to get information out of her is to indulge in some... BDSM play with her? Yeah, because he can read her thoughts. Yeah. So he knows her deepest kinks. To which Kane, played by uh, Peter Firth, replies, I'm a natural voyeur. I'm going to stick around and watch this. <laughs> it's like, I lost my mind. I'm going to stick around scene. and watch. I'm a natural voyeur. And then he just sits back down, puts his hand on his chin, and leans back to enjoy the show. <laughs> it's extremely British. Yeah. It is extremely the, British. The attitude to sex is extremely British in this film. Yeah. And I don't want to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> my favourite is it's more of an exchange, but it's when Kane is talking to Bukowski and he says, tell me again how the girl overpowered you. And Bukowski says, she was the most overwhelmingly feminine presence I have ever encountered. I was drawn to her on a level and then Kane replies, was it sexual? And Bukowski goes, yes, overwhelmingly so. And horrible. Loss of control. If you ever wanted a summation of British attitudes towards sex, it's that exchange. Sounds like George Clooney and Batman and Robin that we talked about last week. <laughs> Who also hates sex. <laughs> There's something about the dialogue in this film that does... And I don't mean this in any offensive way to any translators, but it does feel a bit like a poor English translation of an Italian film. It feels like it would make more sense if you were reading it with subtitles yes. rather than hearing it. And yeah. they were speaking Italian, you're like, oh, this probably makes sense in yeah. Italian. <laughs> but <laughs> They're slapping each other and they like it. Or even like, you know those AI-generated like scripts <laughs> where it's like, okay, you've put in the words Victorian British space alien vampires, how would they deal in the scenario? And then the AI just put out all of this. Because it doesn't feel like it's naturally meant to flow when they speak. It's yeah. not naturalistic in the way that the conversations in Alien feel. Which is surprising yeah. that it's the same screenwriter, just well, five years apart. I mean, the original O'Bannon script for Alien went through massive changes, yeah. especially once Ridley Scott got involved. Um, his name's on it, and you know he will always say that he you know, did a lot to make it happen. And you know, absolutely wouldn't have happened without him, not to diminish his work, but it changed a lot from his original treatment. Um, have you seen Dark Star, by the way? No, I it's wanted to watch it. The film he made with John Carpenter yeah. when they were in film school, and he Dan O'Bannon is also like the lead actor in that as well. That's kind of like you see the root of both Alien and The Thing, which is a film we haven't mentioned. Oh, absolutely. But is definitely it's also one of my favorite films of all time. But I like it for different reasons. But no, kind of a similar premise of a group of people oh, trapped in an isolated. But it's interesting that. Carpenter goes the route of the body horror mm -hmm. side of it, and O'Bannon goes down the more cosmic route of it. I, I just find that uh, really interesting. But yeah, Life Force is... Would you say it's like Alien? Like, I understand why it's relevant to the conversation of Alien, that's why I brought it up. But do you think that they could be seen as of a piece with each other, and even that you'd say this is a, a relevant companion piece to Alien? To, you will better understand Alien if you watch Life Force. Not necessarily that. I think it fits in the sense that there's very few films out there, I think, that go under that sci-fi horror genre. And although I sort of think with Alien, there may be a 50-50 on the sci-fi and horror, and in Life Force it's a bit 30-70 on like the sci-fi and horror elements because it is taking more from like, it has creature feature elements, but also the setting is not very science-orientated. No. No. 
they're vampires, they're from space, but they kind of operate like succubi or vampires that we know from legend. And they even say that's where the legends come from, is from these aliens. So they can say, these follow the same rules as we get from gothic horror, but they're from space. Also, the solution to defeating them without spoiling it, it's quite magical almost. It's, it's based in magical lore. It's Highlander. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if I were to argue, there is a bit of gothic horror in Alien. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I mean, again, I think it might be a stretch, but I still think Life Force, it's such a fun watch for a sci-fi horror because it does have, I think the blending of the genres works really well. Yeah, and the escalation of genres, mm. which, which again reminds me of In the Mouth of Madness, which is, of course, a carpenter, so that you know, ties it back to Darkstar. Yeah, no, nah, it doesn't stop. And that does make it like, even if you watch the first 20 minutes of it and you're like, I don't know if I'm feeling this, if you just stick with it, something will happen that will make that will click with your brain and make you think, oh yeah, this was a worthwhile watch. Maybe don't watch it with your parents. Definitely not. <laughs> uh, I wanted to throw in a, a correction. The novel isn't Vampires from Space, it's The Space Vampires. That's even better. I agree. I really want to read that novel. I wonder if it is as like fun and ridiculous as the film. I hope so. It's called The Space Vampires. It's got to have some ridiculousness embedded into it. I mean, the film itself already screams Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Yeah. And if the book itself doesn't actually read like a Garth Marenghi-like script, then <laughs> I'll be disappointed. I wonder if it's more like a Stephen King book. Well, Garth Marenghi is kind of a Stephen King parody. I suppose, yeah. yeah. The other thing that I, I'm not sure if we should keep in, but whether it mentioned Matilda May, who plays, you know, the female vampire in this, is 18 in this film. Oh. So... Is th that was my question about... 18 the, when yeah. they made the film, not, yeah. not... So it doesn't... She wasn't 17 when they were making yeah. the film. But that would have been my question about the nudity, like, how much was the actress into it? How much was she doing it as a career boost type of thing? How much was she goaded into it by her agent? And a lot of that information we probably just don't have. Well, we know that they auditioned a lot of people and a lot of them weren't okay with that level of nudity. So if it was weeded out at the audition level, it's not like it was sprung on her after she'd already been cast, which mm. I suppose is a good thing. Yeah. But I mean, with, with all these things, I think it just really makes the case for set advocates and intimacy coordinators that we are getting increasingly now. We're not all the way there, but I think things are better than they used to be. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's definitely not even the least exploitative Toby Hooper film. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else? Or should we go to availability? I think we can go to availability. All right, good chat. Is that on <laughs> Disney Plus? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I don't think it is, though. Rakuten TV, then? <laughs> oh, I bet you it's on Rakuten. <laughs> if it's not on Rakuten, I'll be very disappointed. No, you can rent and buy it on Amazon and Apple TV. Brilliant. No, Rakuten. Oh, uh, Rakuten, you've let us down. <laughs> oh, we shouldn't be mean to Rakuten. We're going to get sponsored by them someday. <laughs> Cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we move on to our next pick? Yes, why not? Well, we've got a sec, actually, so I don't forget later... The answer to the question earlier on, is it a dry skerret or a wet skerret in Alien, we have the response. And that is, a dry start, but he gets wetter as he unravels. It's a calm from apathy that becomes panic. Oh, that's can, a good answer. Yeah, I can vibe with that. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a cop-out. We kind of asked for one or the other, and he's like, well, it's kind of more complicated than well, that. It's it's like, just... No, we want straight answers from you. That's why we hired you as our chief skerret correspondent, will you dick? Well, it's there at the beginning, but then it gets put into the eggs chamber and it's very wet then. Okay, uh, should we play the trailer? Yeah, let's play the trailer. Show me 
The Inquest of Pilot Perks, a 1979 Polish-Soviet production directed by Marek Pistrak. Perks, an experienced pilot, is hired to go on a top-secret mission to evaluate some non-linears, an experimental model of Android, for use as crew members on future space flights. Perks and his intriguing crew are sent out to launch two satellites into the rings of Saturn, but he's determined to find out and identify a hostile and human co-worker among them. So, this was one of the hardest alternates I had to pick. I think Laura Sidonil on the head earlier, they're like, there aren't really that many good sci-fi horrors outside of Alien. And I landed on this like a week ago, I think, because uh, I was very curious to look into more Soviet sci-fi cinema, because it, it was a huge genre, especially in the 70s and 80s. In... When it's, does Solaris come out before this? So Solaris comes out before this, but this film is based on a short story or a series of short stories by the author of the book Solaris, okay. uh, Stanislaw Lem. Uh, who's a really, really good sci-fi author. So I was immediately drawn to this. And, you know, we're talking about Ridley Scott. This is kind of the meeting point between Alien and Blade Runner in a way, isn't it? Uh, It's got bits of both. And I was just wondering what you guys thought of it to start off with. I just want to say that my viewing of it will be extremely biased because I saw M3 again this week. (laughs) I saw it with two of our former guests. Yeah, with Siobhan and Antonia. Yeah, Yeah, from uh, our Fight Club episode. But yeah, so I was kind of thinking a film that is all about androids, I kind of wanted them to be bitchy. <laughs> mm. The evil android in this is super camp, and he I'll is. defend that statement. That's true. Also, the film does sort of become Rashomon by the end. It's it's three films in one, which if, if I have one complaint... It's, about, it's kind of similar to Life Force in that respect. Yeah, but if I have one complaint about this is that it should have been two hours long. It's only 90 minutes long, which is normally my preferred length of film, but this film actually has a lot in it that could have been expanded on. But yeah, Loris. I do think that the film struggles a little bit in ratioing out, like, it has this first part that is the setup, establishing that there's these different organizations involved with space work and android making and who Perks is and the threat on his life. And then the second part, which is the most interesting part, is when they're on the ship and you have to play, like, who's who on, like, who's human, who's android. And that's the most atmospheric, the most tense, and the most, yeah, plainly interesting part of the film. The last part of being the trial is a bit... The actual titular inquest, yeah. Yeah, I mean... So it's not a spoiler, it's in the title. Well, no, because the the short story this is based on... So, sorry to cut you off, but just to give some more context. Pilot Perks was the protagonist of a dozen, I think 20-ish, something like that, something between a dozen and 20 short stories by Stanislaw Lem. And... The main story that inspired this is called The Inquest, and it's all set during the trial oh, as so we're going even... through what happened during the, uh, on the spaceship in flashback. So it could have been more like Rashomon. It could have been way more like Rashomon, yeah. I would have preferred that. Me too. Yeah. Not that I, I did enjoy this film, but I really enjoyed how he was told from the beginning, now, you're not going to be told who are humans and who are androids. You go on and don't try to figure it out, just for the sake of the experiment, don't figure it out. Immediately he tries to figure it out and they break the rules by trying to tell him. That was the most interesting part for me, but before we get to that part, I'd like to talk about the setup a little bit because it's, yeah, very Blade Runner in that they are trying to build this race of intelligent androids to essentially perform slave labor. Only here it sounds like they want to rebel, you know, before being entirely turned into laborers. But... 
Pyrrhix doesn't trust them because he doesn't trust the machines uh, that they built not to go rogue or be evil. Because he'd seen Alien. <laughs> because he'd seen Alien. And, oh, by the way, when I picked this, I completely forgotten about the subplot in Alien that one of the crew members is secretly a robot that wants to kill them. Oh, was, really? I uh, thought that was why. No, uh, it's like when you picked Muffy for uh, Top Gun without knowing there was a shirtless volleyball scene in it. It was a moment <laughs> Yeah, it's like exactly that. the same. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, sorry, that, that's a tangent. But what's interesting about the set of this film that kind of reminds me of Alien is that Stanislaw Lem set Pirx's universe not in a futuristic Soviet society, it's much more reminiscent of a capitalistic Western, like um, almost American society. Uh, the film was shot in Poland, which is, you know, kind of between the Soviet Union and Western Europe. But it is a communist country at it this is, point. It is, yeah, but it's, you know, this you still have, you know, high rises and skyscrapers as a settings. And the people who produce these robots are a private company who want to mass-produce the robots so they can profit off of them, regardless of whether these robots prove to be dangerous or not. And it is kind of paying you know, a bit of lip service towards the fact that, oh, you see, like private corporations are evil. Uh, the government actually hires Pirks himself because they have an interest in gauging whether these uh, machines are good or not before putting them into production. So Pirx is hired because he's such a bitch and because they know he's gonna be the one who is so upfront and honest that if there are problems with these robots, he's gonna find them. He's not a bitch. His boyfriend may be a bit more of a bitch. <laughs> he has a boyfriend. He does goes, have a boyfriend. That he goes on um, he, hiking trips How do you know they're hiking buddies? <laughs> they're just hiking buddies. Yeah. Just two buddies that go hiking together. They're also roommates. They're roommates who go hiking together. This should have been my Brokeback Mountain pick. I think just like, not to make a joke out of it, but Perks being a gay character does add this interesting framework to what he's being asked to do and being asked to examine what is you know, a replicable version of masculinity. There was this meme a while ago that was like, there should be a TV show that's called Find Out the Straight Guy or something like that. And you put a bunch of gay guys in a room and one straight guy and they have to find out who's straight. But the plot twist is that they're all actually straight guys. So they have to like try and out-gay each other. It's kind of something like that, but with robots, although they don't all turn out to be robots, unfortunately. I mean, you could make a very convincing queer reading of this film should get Paxton on the case. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could make a queer reading of it, but I just genuinely think that the, again, the most interesting part of the film is them on the ship and trying to read each crew member's like behavioral patterns, which could be an interesting study on homosocial circles and stuff. Absolutely. But it's just too short. I really like it. I really like it. It's definitely a worthwhile film to discuss on air and it's definitely a good alternative to Alien, but it's like that part does feel quite short. Yeah, it's the best part of the film and it's the shortest of the three. Can I ask you guys something? If you didn't like each other's picks, would you break up? Absolutely. Our relationship is entirely built on our film taste. And the films you bring to this podcast. Yes, absolutely. We yeah. did actually meet at a film screening. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, I laughed so hard I blew out the mic. Yeah. But sorry, did you have one more point to make on the... Um, Connection to Alien. Uh, yeah. I do, because it's kind of the reverse of Alien's treatment of androids, because mm. in Pilot Perks, the androids are being created almost so they can be an expendable labor force. 
in dangerous missions, whereas in Alien, Ash is, broadly speaking, the most valuable crew member to the corporation. Yeah, the humans so, are expendable. Yeah, yeah. I, I but, think but that's they, an interesting... But they make a point like that in Perks as well, where the moment Loros mentioned earlier when they're in the ship and playing mind games, so all of the crew members are instructed not to tell the pilot who's a robot and who's a human so that he can judge their skills independently of any bias. The moment they get on the spaceship, each of them goes up to him and they're like, I'm actually a human and I can prove it. I'm a, some claim to be robots. And then they say, oh, I know who the robot is, it's that guy. And then someone else comes up and contradicts the previous person. That's a very almost like, it's so interesting. It's like a puzzle movie that you're trying to figure out who's lying and who's not. Um, Have you ever played Werewolf? Yeah, it's kind of it's like It's kind that. of like Werewolf. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's acting like a robot, but is that because he's a human acting the way a robot? Would a robot act more like a human yeah. than a human who was scared of being seen as a robot? Um, but one of the people who claims to be a robot makes a point that they're not gonna get retired by the company because they're too expensive to make. And in fact, the inquest at the end is sprung by the fact that one of the robots, the robot on the ship, I'm not gonna spoil the circumstances, but gets damaged in some way. And the inquest is to determine whether the crew was at fault for this really expensive loss. And they should be, you know, uh, persecuted. With, yeah. that, that word, and prosecuted. Prosecuted, Pro- prosecuted thank you. Uh, they should be prosecuted for that or not. So uh, th- this film kind of makes a point like that. I, th- I think they want to create robots to go in space for reason more similar to Blade Runner in that, yeah, they spend a lot of money to build the robot, they don't have to pay them, and they are way more durable once they're out in space. Yeah, that makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. I will give credit. I know I keep shit-talking the last third of this film, but the last moment of the trial is actually quite bone-chilling. Yeah. Without is spoiling it, it, can you tell us why? Because, uh, I mean, we're discussing here about, like, the treatment of androids in Alien compared to pilot perks, and it's like, is there an element of, like, threat to the human race? Because that's the thing that we care about the most, because we're all humans, I presume. Uh-huh. But, are we? Like, in the in Pilot Perks, it's like, yes, there is this element of, like, the androids say that they're too expensive to be expendable, but then there's this element of, like, can they develop their own motivation? And are they showing their own motivation when they're on the ship? And it's admitted that they have their own motivation. That's beyond even the control of, like, a wider government conspiracy or anything like that, which is has interesting, ambiguous implications. And that, I think, is actually a very genius touch of the film. I think it's so interesting that we have been talking about, you know, there is a conversation about the rights of these artificial humans and how we have been kind of having the same conversations about the rights of artificial intelligence even before we were coming into daily contact with AI. It's so interesting, not that it's prophetic, but that this has been on our mind the whole time and we still haven't worked out an answer to it. And also the fact that the robot who goes rogue. So when I mentioned that they're very camp is because there's one point when Perks is on the ship and finds this like, it's like, it's like a floppy disk and it's the villain's recorded monologue with his face and voice obscured and encrypted where it's just a silhouette of him in a spacesuit with the best psychedelic 1970s computer-generated backgrounds. It looks like some old Windows screensaver just blasting in the background and laying out his evil plan. It was kind of giving me incel vibes. Yeah, like, you know... Because that person is saying that I am superior. I'm going to take over the world. Yeah, Yeah. so, so what he's saying is he's going to basically orchestrate this incident, which all of the humans will die... Oh no, the, uh, he actually says this before his recording. In his recording, he lays out his ideology, right? But before the recording, we kind of see a, a shot from the back of him 
starting to set up his plan and he says that he's going to orchestrate this incident which all the human crew will die, their bodies will be crushed by gravity, but his body will survive in order to then land back on Earth and prove the superiority of his race over the humans. But his video that he makes, it reminds me less of Instos. If Instos were actually camp, if they were actually fun, they'd make videos like that. I don't know. This is how it's tying into Life Force then, like horror, but camp. That, that moment is quite scary in a way, and now you're making me reframe it as like, oh yeah, those psychedelic visuals, pretty chill. I thought it was so funny. The, the, what he's saying is terrifying, because he's laying out this like dystopic future, but it's also like, from one point of view, it's like, it's the same argument that Ash in Alien makes about the inherent superiority of a species over the other, and that's Pierce's struggle here. He acknowledges the fact that robots are more intelligent and stronger than humans, and his quest is less to outsmart or overpower the robot, and it's more to find a quality that is inherently and uniquely human that it can use as an advantage against the robot. It's something that we still have to ask ourselves every day with the advent of AI. Yeah, and I also think there is something interesting about a conversation about replicable humanity and specifically stereotypes of artificial intelligence and conformity in a communist setting specifically, in a society that doesn't value individualism. I've not given a huge amount of thought to this line of questioning as you can probably see, but I think there, that is an, also an interesting element. What does it mean to be a non-linear in a world where the idea of what you're meant to be is quite prescribed for you. Yeah, but I don't know, as I said earlier, I don't know how much this film is a critique of communism itself. I I don't think it's a critique, but I think that it's worth acknowledging that it comes from a communist setting. It does, but it's also the fact that... So, going back to the original books, uh, and to Alien, in fact, Pyrrhx is coded as a sort of working-class hero. Obviously, here, you know, he's at a point in his career where I assume, you know, he's been in the game for a while, he's probably accumulated some wealth, but he's still comes from a kind of like rugged working class background. That's why he's very like down to earth and no bullshit. And the way that this film critiques conformism, it's certainly something that is echoed in Soviet Russian systems, but also in Western systems of working class exploitation, being cogs in a machine rather Mm. than being individuals. But also the fact that he has to kind of work with his crew to take down the robot it is also a point that this film, I think, is making. So I just don't know how much this ship is meant to be an allegory of any particular government. No, if, I don't, I don't if, think If it anything, is. I'm I'm just saying I, that I think it's a bit too sympathetic to the Soviet government because they show kind of the government officials as being the good guys in the line between the working class guy and the big corporation. Sure, but I mean, I don't know much about censorship laws in communist Poland, but I imagine they're quite similar to a lot of other communist countries. Oh, absolutely, where yeah. It needs to get a stamp of approval. Yeah, I mean, and one of the reasons why Tarkovsky was eventually exiled, I don't think he ever made any like explicitly anti-Soviet films. But also he was in Russia, he wasn't even in Poland, so I assume he was under much higher scrutiny than the people who made this film. Yeah, mm. Whereas this, this isn't a Soviet film, it's just a... But it's a co-production between Poland and the Soviet Union. I didn't know that. Yeah. Is there anything else I should move on to availability? There is a sequence where someone crashes through a wall and leaves a human-shaped Looney Tunes hole in the wall, which I don't know if it was meant to be funny or cartoony. I just found this so oddly out of place that I thought I should mention it. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, availability. This film isn't currently available on any streaming services or VOD services, but you can buy the DVD and 
At the moment, there are some versions of it on YouTube, which I suppose you can view legally, but if you uploaded it, shame on you. Yeah, because I was watching other Soviet sci-fi films for this, and another one that I couldn't find anywhere was also on YouTube. So I assume if you're into like this period of cinema, look for them on YouTube, or just watch Solaris, in case you still haven't seen that one somehow. I would I definitely start with Solaris. Yeah, I mean, that's like the most famous one. And one of yeah. the best films of all time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, should we move on to our final pick of the day? We shall. Tetsuo the Iron Man is a 1989 film directed by Shinya Tsukamoto. A metal fetishist driven mad by the maggots wriggling in the wound he's made to embed metal into his own flesh, runs out into the night and is accidentally run down by a Japanese businessman and his girlfriend. The pair dispose of the corpse in hopes of quietly moving on with their lives. However, the businessman soon finds out that he's now plagued by a vicious curse that transforms his flesh into iron. Just like Robert Downey Jr. Exactly. This is the real Marvel. <laughs> but that aside, what did you two think of this film? Uh, my only thoughts finishing this was, blimey, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot of metal. The guy has a lot of metal on him. Yeah. Okay. I guess I'll provide an explanation as to why I chose this film. Please. Um, we mentioned earlier very briefly that I actually consider Alien to be a cyberpunk film. Understanding cyberpunk in the West can mean a great many different things. I think a lot of people often think of in a certain aesthetic that Ridley Scott basically created for Blade Runner as being like... Neo-Tokyo. Yeah, well, I mean, that's Neo-LA, though. But... It is very based on ideas of futuristic Tokyo. Yeah, and the thing is, that is a bit of a problematic interpretation of cyberpunk in the West, and it's something that kind of unfortunately sticks, that cyberpunk is so wrapped up in this idea of, like, hyper-East Asian aesthetics and neon. And actually, there does exist what's referred to as Japanese cyberpunk, which is kind of viewed as a separate subgenre of cyberpunk. And Tetsuo the Iron Man is one of the leading titles of Japanese cyberpunk. And of course, it's completely devoid of what we aesthetically associate with cyberpunk. It's in black and white, it's lo-fi, poor budgeted, there's no neon, there's no cityscape, but it is still dealing with the fundamentals of cyberpunk, which deal with the idea of like being at the low levels of a futuristic dystopia or of a sci-fi setting. So in Alien, we have the Nostromo crew, who are just ordinary crew people, they're not necessarily scientists, they're not like purposely driven out to space to explore, they're just ordinary crew people. And in Tetsuo, we're dealing with a businessman who comes across a very disturbed individual who has a fetish for metal, and how this then ends up transforming into a very psychosexual, sci-fi, horror, well, all body horror, and then there's also shonen-esque elements of like the two coming head to head with each other to battle it out um and, and the metal sort of it forms almost like samurai armor from a kurosawa film it does 
does. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's a very, it's a film that has a lot of mishmash about it. Again, similar to Alien, it has the sci-fi element, it has a horror element, it has body horror, it has practical effects. I mean, this is 1989 and this is really low budgeted. There is no like CGI in this film. There's really good stop motion though. There's fantastic stop motion. Also, another kind of key fact that I kept reminding Francesco of when we were watching it is that the apartment spaces that they used were actual cast members' apartments. So they completely destroyed the lead actress's apartment in making this film. Yeah, they drilled a hole in her table, in her wall. Who knows how much paint they splattered all over the walls. Uh, so my definition of cyberpunk is, you know, cyber being related to, you know, computers and artificial intelligence. I think of this more as industrial punk. I mean, because the technology, other than, you know, it taking over you is this parasitic force, it's based on even like late 19th century technology of metal and shoots and pipes and things like that. But aesthetically Tetsu is very very reminiscent of Geiger's paintings and True. the design of the Xenomorph. The mechanical elements in the Xenomorph and in the Xenomorph's uh, ship with the space jockey have mechanical tubes. They're very machinic. They're not cybernetic in that sense, right? Sure. Um, but, but with Japanese cyberpunk, I feel like nowadays we still mix it a lot together with stuff like Blade Runner because of Ghost in the Shell, which is much more Blade Runner-esque, but actually came out later than this. That I actually think is kind of a myth. Um, I'm just going to... A good way, I would say, in establishing the difference between Western cyberpunk and Japanese cyberpunk is when you watch the original Ghost in the Shell film, when you look at the settings, there are sometimes like neon cityscapes. But in the sequence where she is fighting with the invisible robot, it just looks like Hong Kong. Yeah. It looks like Hong Kong as Hong Kong did in the mid-1990s. When you watch the Ghost in the Shell remake, mm. that disastrous piece of shit, you will notice that there's so much more like geisha neon lights all over the place. It's up the aesthetic to about an 11 to resemble more of Blade Runner than it does the original Ghost in the Shell. I, I guess my point was like the idea that Ghost in the Shell is about artificial intelligence and its relationship with humanity, whereas Tetsuo and in a way the Xenomorph are more about the physical merging of the mechanical with the organic. Totally, yeah, there is that element. Also, another key element that made Tetsuo come to mind with regards to this episode is that we talk about an alien, there's this ominous undercurrent of capitalism, expendability with humans, and the existence of this overseeing company. And in Tetsuo, although there isn't like a company per se, there's the salary man. The salary man is, doesn't have a name. He's meant to be kind of a blank canvas representing all salarymen, all cogs in the machine of capitalism, which Sugimoto was actively venting against. The context of how this film came to be made is that Sugimoto, uh, he did land a job, a rather successful job in an advertising company. So he was making adverts to be put on television. His parents really loved that. They were like, oh, you're doing something really great with your life. You're a successful person out there. And he hated it. He basically felt like he was selling his soul. And so when he quit his job and told his dad, his dad got so angry that they couldn't live together anymore. So he is making this film as partially like a sense of like, you have to break free from the confines of capitalism, of the salary man, and merge into something that's far more, I mean, it is transhuman. There's definitely that element. It is a kind of play on like, if you're part of a cog in a massive machine, then you end up becoming the machine in a way. The body horror element of that having such resonance to the sort of, obviously not social realism, but the diagnoses of social problems 
I, I think that's th- those are my favorite parts of the film. Mm. And the sexual stuff to go back to Life Force as well. A lot of the transformations are almost like they're very phallic. Purposely phallic, but you know, almost like externalizations of a lot of sexual anxieties and fears uh, of this character. Yeah, same way that the xenomorph also internalizes a lot of sexual anxieties as well. I mean, we mentioned how it subverts the way which it like implants humans with its own eggs in the server. It is a massive play on like masculine fears. I suppose. And then in Tetsuo, there is a queer undercurrent going in through it. There is a sort of hinting that the businessman himself has desires that are a bit more queer and not necessarily heteronormative, and he gets confronted with those desires once he becomes infected with the metal. And again, I sort of think that does feed into, I mean, capitalism, heteronormativity, patriarchy all feed into each other one way or another, and I think Tetsuo does encapsulate that very well. Mm. It's interesting you say that because one of the things I compared it to when watching it was uh, Cronenberg's The Fly, which, you know, has a transformation over the course of a film from a man into a fly man. Mm. But in that, he becomes more hypermasculine and hypersexual, whereas in this, you know, he becomes more sexual. But I agree, it is the final confrontation is between him and Tetsuo, who is controlling the businessman's girlfriend. So there is definitely a, a queer undercurrent to that confrontation. And also Tetsuo looks fucking fabulous during the final sequence, should we mention that? Oh yeah, the hairspray, the eyeliner, oh my gosh, the outfit the changes. Lipstick. Yeah, the yeah. changes, plural. He has like three different outfit changes in that last act, it's amazing. Has anyone ever done a body horror drag night? You know what? I, I've known someone who's done that. Yeah. I love it. I love that. <laughs> but like I, specifically a drag night dedicated to body horror or just a set? Alas, like, not a drag night, but they did do a set where they um, took out their own intestines. Like they had like intestines put under their suit. It was amazing. <laughs> Take um, that, RuPaul. I know, right? What do you think of the use of black and white in this film? I really like, I think it may have some practical usage in obscuring. The perhaps, limited budget. Yeah, because Agreed. when it's in black and white, then, you know, you don't necessarily have to keep up with certain color correction with like the editing and the scenery. I don't know how this would have looked in color. I think Especially with been... stop motion. Like they were, they're doing stop motion shots outdoors where the lightning can change every second. Uh, so yeah, no, not having to do color grading was a blessing. Mm. Also, like we mentioned how good the use of darkness and like the absence of light in Alien is. And there's clearly uh, an incentive there to kind of hide the model of the xenomorph so it doesn't look too much like a guy in a suit. And they, you know, they use that in favor of the horror elements of the film. And I think that Tetsu does the same. But also with the gray scale, making it look like metal and mechanical even more. Yeah. It allows the skin and the metal to blend really well yeah. without having like a hard transition between what, you know, could look like a Patrick Troughton era Doctor Who monster. Mm-hmm. True, yeah. Also... Obviously, the main film that we're discussing is a Ridley Scott film, and Alien has some punk elements, but it doesn't necessarily go too hard in on, like, pro-workers' rights or anything like that. It's not counterculture, particularly. It's... Yeah. I mean, it's counterculture in the way that, you know, it has a female lead, and it's progressive in some ways, but it's not a leftist film. Yeah, and I can even maybe make some arguments in regards to Blade Runner. I know you have already discussed this, so I won't go too into it, but... No, you you should, because we're not going to do another episode on Blade Runner, so hearing opinions on it later on, actually, is quite nice. Yeah. I mean, Blade Runner has its own limitations in, like, evil corporations destroying robots, 
But um, I think perhaps those elements are a bit better explored in the sequel uh, about like the nature of the evil corporation and such, and also their treatment of women. I actually rather like that in Tetsuo, a lot of the opponents that the businessman has to fight are women, even if they are being possessed by Tetsuo, they're shown in this very like punk kind of like crazy, forceful sort of way. Um, the woman who just sits next to him at, I think it's a train station or, or somewhere, just on the bench next to him and then gets taken over by um, the Iron Man. She's That whole sequence is spectacular and really scary. But it also got to my other thought about the film, which is I really like that they don't over-explain it. They don't say, oh, how does he get from one body to another? It's not like, oh, it's this ancient curse or it's these aliens who fell down to Earth. It's very much, no, this guy wanted to be a metal person, and now he's making other people metal. If you don't like it, deal with it. But also, it's not about the plot, just watch it. But there's a quick scene where he goes to a doctor, and the doctor says, oh, someone embedded a piece of metal into your brain. They must have been a genius. There's no way to remove it without killing you. And it's clear that that piece of metal is in a specific point of the brain that is causing the superpowers, but that's all the explanation we're given. But also in that scene, you get more camp, because he says, think of it like jewellery. <laughs> True that. Which is a great line. But yeah, I think uh, Blade Runner has this unfortunate legacy of instilling in Western cyberpunk media a lot of appropriation of East Asian aesthetics, sure. despite not representing actually any East Asian characters in a lot of cyberpunk media in the West. I know that this conversation can come up a lot, and it may be a bit confusing if you aren't necessarily in the know about this kind of genre of discourse, but if, if you really want to get a bit of an understanding as to why as to where the cyberpunk sex originate from, or even understand cyberpunk as it is in another culture, particularly in regards to East Asian culture. You could start with Tetsuo, it's a bit challenging, but even if you don't start with Tetsuo, Ghost and Shell, Akira, there's several other titles that are slipping from my mind right now, but those are good places to start. And Tetsuo is punk as fuck. At the end of the day, it is this low-budgeted film, it's made off of real passion, of it's a vent project against capitalism, against conformity, and is quite queer as well. So, um, yeah, that's why I would push anyone to watch it. It's a great fucking film. And it's 60, or just over 60 minutes long. Yeah. It's about 67 minutes? Yeah, 67, yeah. I think. It also has two sequels. I'm definitely going to have to watch it some By the same director? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Loris, before we finish on this film, My Neighbor Totoro. Mm. Cyberpunk or not cyberpunk? This is a difficult question. I mean, magical realism and cyberpunk. Interesting. Because <laughs> um, there is a bus. There, there is a bus. There's a cat bus, which is both mechanical and organic. So, you know, transhumanism in the work of Miyazaki, write it up. Yeah. <laughs> True, yeah. Should we talk availability? Okay, this film is more available than you might think. Uh, you can stream it on Shudder and Arrow, and you can rent it on Google Play, YouTube, Amazon, and Microsoft, and you can buy it on all those channels. But not Rakuten TV. But not Rakuten TV, they betrayed us. Uh, it's also on the Criterion channel. So, to wrap things up, Loris, if Alien is the main course, which of the alternates is the chest burster that bursts through your chest as you're enjoying your main course? Gentlemen, I am anemic. I need my daily dose of iron. But, Emily, that feels a bit biased. The thing is, it really, really depends. If you're watched Alien, you're like, I need to de-stress. Like, I really need to de-stress, that was like too much for me. You should go for Life Force. It's a very easy follow-up. I think Life Force is a great watch with friends as well. Totally. Um, but if you were like more intrigued by the kind of like conspiratorial aspects, the android aspects of Alien, Pilot Perks is like perfect for that. If anything, I'd recommend Pilot Perks before Alien. I don't think Perks is a difficult film to sit through. It's a boring film, but because it's very cerebral and quite talky, you 
kind of need to like you know be in the mood for it is how, is how I'll put it it's on a very different level to Alien in terms of emotional engagement yeah yeah but I also just think that the, the motions of that plot feel like such a precursor like that yeah. could be before they put Ash on the ship it just feels very thematically like this is how they went from like we're gonna make androids we're gonna put them on the ship we're gonna test out their viability on a ship and that to me is like such prequel s kind of feelings for like any story related to an android yeah but personally i do sort of think like i love the chaos of tetsuo the iron man i think it builds more upon like the body horror aspects it's more chaotic it's has that similar gritty dark atmosphere the biomechanical nature of it all so that's why i would choose as a follow-up yeah, my first choice would probably be Tatsuo. Life Force if you needed sort of a palate cleanser. Pilot Perks if you needed more of a brainy, cerebral, thought-provoking take on the, you know, horror on a spaceship uh, genre. More of a mystery movie as well. I would say Tetsuo, like just for the sheer chaos of it, and John Hurt's one of my favourite actors, so I relate a lot to the body horror of this film, and it left me wanting more body horror. So I think it's definitely something that I want to watch again, and get sort of deeper into, as well yeah. as the sequels. Yeah, I know. We'll have to check out the sequels at some point. But why don't we commit to doing a Let's Talk on the Tetsuo franchise? With Loris as a guest? Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I heard they're meant to be shit afterwards, but I'm still curious. Well, yeah, but that makes it more interesting. If they were remember mm. the same people, I'm so curious about them. Um, it's February 13th, just one day before uh, Valentine's it's Day. February 12th. Uh, <laughs> no, where is it now? <laughs> it, it's the closest we record near uh, Valentine's Day, so consider this our Valentine's Day special. If you're looking for a film to watch with your partner, watch Alien together. It's a bonding experience. Or Tetsuo. Yeah, any of these films. Well, we'd like to thank our producer, Jade Corbett, uh, our artist, Molecule. Thank you, Loris, for guesting. Yeah. And do you want to shout out any socials or any projects you might want to plug? So my Laura Box... account is Loser Loris and I do have a YouTube channel in which I upload videos of films edited to music that I think suits them. That account is called Loris is Lost. It has a few videos up there at the moment but I'm pretty proud of the ones that are up there so yeah. if you think that's your style then call feel them, free to check it out. Call them what they are, AMVs. How dare you. <laughs> well, well, thank you Francesca. Thank you Charlie. And thank you for listening. <laughs>